Good morning. Good morning from my side, ladies and gentlemen. I am Panos Mitru, the gas segment director for Lloyd's Register, and I am delighted to be moderating the session titled LNG and the New Energy Landscape. For those of us in the gas sector, these have been quite exciting times, as you may have noticed. There are many reasons for this. A growing global demand, a changing energy mix, energy security concerns, as we have seen recently with geopolitics, and the need to extend our maritime supply chains. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and we have only 40 minutes for this discussion. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to our panel. From GasLog, we have Paolo Enoici. Paolo has been the CEO of GasLog Limited since March 2022, and uh, he has been also the CEO of GasLog Partners since August 2021. Uh, before that, he was a COO for GasLog since September 2019, and uh, before GasLog, Paolo was a managing director at Stoll Tankers. He has a master's degree in naval architecture and marine engineering from the University of Genoa. And uh, we, we have also uh, Jerry Calogiratos, chief executive officer at NASDAQ listed Capital Product Partners, the capital group controlling 12 LNG carriers, six of them in service and six of them on order, as well as a large diversified fleet of container tanker and dry bulk vessel. Jerry has extensive experience in all key sectors of commercial shipping and has led numerous strategic transactions in the capital markets. Uh, and we also have from Norway, but practically with us today, uh, somebody who has been dominating the shipping headlines, Sveining Stolle, the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Agelikusa Shipping Group, having stepped down as President and CEO of Hug LNG last November, and he has quite a vast experience with the LNG industry, 25 years of experience in both shipping and oil and gas companies. Last but by no means least, Andrew Scorer, Freight Analytics Lead at S&P Global Commodity Insights. He has worked, Andrew has worked across the supply chain in numerous customer facing roles with leading data providers. But in the last six months, let me underline, he and his team have been working hard to provide an alternative fuels fleet breakdown out to 2050. So we will have the chance an insight of that as well. So let's kick off today's session and I will begin with some reflections on the current situation and uh, where we are with the markets and especially the energy markets. We seem to, to, to lie away from equilibrium with LNG price hikes, a shift of LNG from less developed countries that used to be the demand drive to now, again, developed countries, shorter holes to Europe, and, uh, of course, a number of new factors like greenhouse gas regulations, especially um, IMO, coming regulations, that will all 
also put constraints on the fleet. So the key question is where we stand with the future uh, on the LNG market, and especially where do we stand with the LNG shipping markets and the supply-demand balance. So uh, practically what we see is that orders and slots have almost vanished, but LNG plants keep coming, export terminals that will add more supply in the system. And uh, the question is, what do we expect to be the developments in the LNG and the LNG shipping markets? Yesterday, there was an article of the Financial Times that traders rush into securing any available tonnage. And allow me to start this round from Jerry, because I know he may be managing ships that have not yet been fixed. So, Jerry, would you? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pandu. Oh, there. there you go. Uh, thank you, Pandu. And uh, that is uh, an interesting and all-encompassing question, I guess. Uh, where's the LNG shipping markets going to be? Um, I think we are probably at the start of a um, uh, super cycle for um, shipping LNG rates um, with um, uh, certain um, characteristics and drivers that um, are quite specific to this uh, cycle. Uh, I think the most important one is uh, that uh, high LNG commodity prices um, are here to stay. Um, and I think it's uh, going to be some time before uh, we see uh, the, um, uh, you know, uh, natural gas prices that we saw in the U.S. or um, in Europe. Uh, pricing is going to be driven um, by um, energy security and geostrategic uh, considerations, um, and um, uh, there will be a rush uh, for um, supply. Um, we will see more FIDs uh, going forward for projects uh, that until recently were doubtful. Um, but I think one should be cautious uh, in assuming that everything uh, will go ahead. We are in uh, an adverse microeconomic environment with uh, high interest rates um, and um, financiers uh, are not necessarily there to back um, hydrocarbon projects uh, for the long term, even if LNG is uh, a transition uh, fuel, according to many. Uh, so there will be increased supply, but um, I don't think we will see everything coming online as we see today. The high uh, commodity price uh, will um, continue to create a very nuanced three-tier market between the three different propulsion and uh, technologies going forward. Um, you know, in um, a TTF um, LNG price of 25 bucks, uh, the differential between um, a two-stroke vessel uh, is almost $120,000 compared to a steamship and uh, maybe around 50 compared to TFDs. And that's before taking into account uh, the impact of VXI, CII, and potential market-based measures when it comes to um, carbon emissions. So if anything, as uh, this uh, comes to the forefront, uh, this differential will be even uh, more nuanced. So as a result of that, I think we will see very high demand uh, by charters for two-stroke vessels and for long-term period charters. And uh, given also the um, 
shipyard capacity situation that you described, uh, we expect that uh, this will uh, drive rates uh, potentially even higher, uh, especially when it comes to uh, period business. Okay. Um, thank you, Jerry. Svenu, would you like to add to that? <coughs> yes, I'd be pleased, pleased to do so. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, first, um, let me just put the picture with respect to my company. Uh, so we are in tankers, dry ships, and LNG. Roughly 50 vessels each, so total fleet of about 150 vessels. When it comes to LNG, um, I do agree with Jerry that I think we are looking at uh, a super cycle. Um, and I can say that because I don't have a share price to defend. Uh, so we are a private company, and um, clearly, uh, I think the supply-demand, if you look at the, the current picture, the total market this year is, is expected to be around 410 million tons of LNG demand. Uh, two years ago, that number was about 350. So just in two years, the market has increased uh, 16%. <clears throat> and if there was more LNG available, I think the number would be even higher. Um, the expectation is that, and this is only plants that are under construction, the total market will grow to 550, maybe even 600 million tons in three, four years from now. So I think the, uh, the market uh, prospects for LNG has probably never been better. And this is before <coughs> taking the, the war into account. Because obviously, when Europe is going to replace the equivalent of about 110 million tons of Russian pipeline gas, uh, that will definitely increase demand for LNG carriers even more, uh, even if the distance from the US to Europe is shorter than going to Asia. So uh, the balance when it comes to the ship supply, the fleet today is roughly, roughly 600 vessels with another 170 plus on order. If you do the math, that should tell you that uh, using the rule of thumb of about 1.4 vessels per million tons to be shipped, <coughs> the fleet is roughly in balance, but it's tight and it's going to be tight. And we have currently nine LNG carriers under construction. Um, recently, we've done multiple long-term deals for those. So we're actually seeing charters coming to the market now looking for much longer contracts than, or contractual terms that was the case only a few months ago, which I think also underscores the fact that uh, the charters believe that the market is tight and that they need to secure tonnage for the long term. So in summing up, I think uh, the market definitely looks very good uh, for us that have um, a good position in the LNG shipping market. Okay. Uh, thank you, Svenu. And uh, since the four of us are quite invested with uh, LNG, I will ask Andrew to validate our views on, on what's going to happen. 
Um, well, I mean, historically, I'll start historically. On yeah, the rates have been as I said, it's been really good. I mean, November you went up to sort of two hundred eighty thousand dollars earnings a day. You're now eighty and ninety is coming back up again. I think, as you said, the super cycle's there. I think the hard thing from a commodity perspective is if you look at the actual overall cost, freight for the majority of the time in shipping is sort of maybe you know, no more than ten percent, and you can sort of you, know, you can take that hit. But back in it's been like up to forty five percent of the overall cost. Um, and if you're not into shipping, then it can be like, what's this, all of this, and you know, why is the rates high? I think all of the changes in the trade lanes and is really good. Um, it's going to make it tighter, harder for everybody to do that. And I think you know, the last panel said it, you've got to be nimble. And I think you've got to keep on being flexible. I think there's more to come. Um, LNG is really exciting. Um, yeah, you've seen the Greeks you know, making it very good success on, they're talking about it you know, in the LNG. I think there's going to be a lot of investment in there. And I think if you look at it from the LNG dual fueled, I think that's for me where there's a lot of excitement as well. You know, you've got, in the alternative fleet side, you've got about 52 million deadweight tons of, you know, on, the, on the water. 50 million of that is actually LNG. Only 10% is actually on the dual fueled mm -hmm. side. So you've already jumped from 2021 up to 2022, you've jumped up by 10 million metric, yeah, sorry, 10 million deadweight tons of actual capacity. There's a lot of LNG there, majority is LNG dual fueled. Um, yeah, some are still about, I think about 10% are LNG ready. Will they do that? And then you've got LNG dual fueled with that ammonia ready, which I think is about 7% of the order book. Mm -hmm. It's going to keep on going up. And I think you, the container industry, um, is leading the way, which is really exciting. They've got 36 um, LNG dual-fueled vessels in. You've got 155 on the order book. Okay. I mean, that's you know, they're taking up all the slots, as we sort of yeah we've said. And I think the order book is the, the capacity you know, in the shipyards is going to be tight. Yeah. But if you we're in no rush. I mean, you know, if it's tight for the guys, then it's going to be great for earnings. Um, it's keeping people. Yeah, behaving themselves and not trying to order all of those books. Um, but we've got until 2050 to actually yeah, come into these regulations. Yes, you've got this, this other ETS, which I know we'll come on to in a bit, and yeah, the 2030, but really 2050 is where we're trying to get to. Um, so we can, LNG is not, you know, it is, we talk about it as the transitional fuel, but it's still going to be a massive mix, maybe up to 34% yeah, of the order, but well, the, yeah. the LNG demand. So we'll come. We'll come also uh, more precisely on on the fuel question. But before we get to that, I have a more challenging question for Paolo. So lately, we are witnessing witnessing more and more investor or funds based schemes entering the sector, and we have seen uh, bids at unimaginable lows in the recent chartering tenders. So what, what is your view about this acidification effect that is taking place in the LNG sector and whether a traditional company with the, the let's say, the more conventional management attributes can practically compete with uh, a fund using a third-party experienced third-party manager and using a more effective, efficient, uh, competitive capital source. So 
what yeah, I, I know that you have experience of working with fans and big players, but also you are a very well-experienced manager in LNGCs. So w what's your view on this, Paul? Thank you, Panos. And, you know, to respect the audience, Kalimera and Karib Domada to everyone. Um, I think it's a very interesting question because you definitely have seen what you're asking us. I mean, this is a trend that has come up and has been evident in mega orders like the Qatari ones or, you know, the Shell ones that happened a couple of years or one and a half years ago. But you've seen that tendency also sort of dropping down into maybe small orders from still national companies. So there definitely is a trend there. Um, and I think there are some elements where uh, you know, people are definitely entitled to use a, um, a way of contracting services in this way. Um, and it might be beneficial to the target that they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. However, I think they're, they're moving the optionality from the, from the hands of the operator it has also a lots of drawbacks. Because what you create, you create a very stiff structure with people that have vested interest in one area of operation but they don't really see the whole of it. And, and I think you've seen, one, a race to the bottoms on, on rates, that if you probably go back now, and I would say not maybe later than 12 months from now, uh, or sort of back, looking back at 12 months ago, probably people would have decided uh, not to do that. Uh, contracts in, for instance, on new buildings on low 60s, uh, even sometimes I-50s, with no inflation corrections for maybe 10 years. I mean, those contracts are really going to hurt, uh, probably right now. So is that sustainable? I mean, this is really the question. And, and that brings you to the other question, which is, what do you expect out of, your, out of your business? What is the return on investments that you expect out of you know, a fair amount of business that you do with all the care for your people, with the attention for the decarbonization plans and for making a return to the investors. And right. Yes, we have, you know, even the BlackRock of the world, who are now, uh, you know, a very, uh, we're very glad that our partners of ours, they look at all of this with, you know, with an increased skepticism. Thank you. And I may, may I ask, pose the same question to Sven, because I, I know you have lots of experience with finance, but also LNG. So do, do you really feel that this is turning into a capital cost war and nothing else matters? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, well, I, I have the great pleasure of having been CEO of uh, an Oslo-listed entity and chairman of a New York-listed entity. And uh, now I work for a private family-owned business. Clearly, uh, these are very, very different ways of doing business. Um, and I think the most important difference between privately held companies, assuming, of course, that they have their balance sheet in order, as compared to publicly listed or funds financed uh, shipping business, the number one difference is the length of time that you take when you look at your business. If you're private, you take time. You take time, you invest in people because it's people that makes the difference in business. And you can do that because you're not looking for an exit in three years or the next quarterly results. So it's a different attitude. 
that's the first point. The second point, I think, is that um, <clears throat> if you have the long-term view, you need to make sure that you make the right investments, not only in the steel, but in the people. And I'm very proud to say that uh, in our group, for, as an example, every year we take in 300 cadets. <clears throat> every year, um, these cadets, they go through their cycles, and we end up hiring roughly 150 of them when they're finished. So we believe very strongly in the, the S in ESG. We have a social responsibility. And for that reason, we also fly the Greek flag. And somewhere between 70 and 80% of our 3,500 officers are Greek. So we believe in investing for the future in people and giving something back to the community. If you have a short-term view and you're only focused on the results, and if you make 8.2% or 8.15% on your return, you don't have time to do that. I think for me, at least, that's where the big difference is. Thank you. Thank you, Sven. So, uh, in a, I would like to come to, to a different subject, but quite critical. Uh, in a recent graph, uh, we saw a comparison between ESG, Google searches, and oil and gas investment. And apparently, it looked like that when ESG searches went up, oil and gas investment went down. Uh, and of course, this is something that we witnessed during and before COVID. And uh, this is the main reason for where we are today with the energy crunch. And we all know that oil and gas investment was abandoned for some years. Uh, when demand picked up again, we had a problem. And we still have a huge problem. And of course, this did not help the, transi the transition. Eventually, we are now consuming more coal than ever. And my question, and I would start this from Jerry, with a greater view on shipping segments. Do you feel that something similar may happen to shipping due to, the, due to this uncertainty? We are not investing and eventually uh, we will ruin the supply demand balance and come into a market that will be quite constrained in terms of finding shipping? I think it's um, quite quite difficult, especially for the uh, maritime transportation segment, um, to have a very visible and tangible path to net zero, given the technological challenges that shipping is facing. Um, we cannot just use batteries on our vessels, uh, given the the long distances and the uh, output needed. And uh, the technological innovation um, that is required um, is still, unfortunately, at embryonic levels. So we have to commit to doing uh, what we can do today 
Um, and uh, the IMO, as well as other international organizations, uh, have been moving in that direction with regulations that don't necessarily get us there, that is to, to net zero, but at least um, are in steps in the right direction. As you say, the important element in this is not to backtrack, even if uh, the measures that uh, we are put in place are not perfect. Uh, we have um, seen this again and again, uh, even in the LNG space, for example, um, where discussions um, around um, uh, whether steam ships uh, should be tre treated differently uh, can potentially affect uh, not only the way that regulations um, are um, introduced and implemented, but also might disincentivize um, ship owners to endorse new technologies and innovate. In reality, many of us that have been investing in uh, two-stroke uh, vessels, uh, new propulsion arrangements, including sub-generators to reduce methane emissions, um, air lubrication systems, and many other uh, technological innovations, it's incremental steps. They are not uh, a panacea. Um, the moment that we see regulatory backtracks or a slowdown in the implementation that will create disincentivization uh, for people to continue with these investments. So I think we should and um, we are implementing what we have. It might not be perfect, but uh, this will induce further technological innovation down the road that uh, hopefully will lead us to, uh, towards a more sustainable path towards uh, net zero. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry, and I think this is a give us a very good opportunity to discuss a bit on your last point, consistency. How do we balance regulation today and what is the balance between an existing fleet, which cannot perform and operate to the level that modern tonnage does? How do we treat this? And I, I would like to come to Paolo about this, uh, because I know he had this dilemma. So, Paolo. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think Jerry raises a very important point, which is the efficiency of the vessels. And I think, you know, we've seen not only in the energy space, but on, in general across the whole shipping industry, there has been a race to improving the energy efficiency of the vessels with all the, you know, possible technology out there. There's been lots of discussions on what is the trajectory to net zero and the fact that you need uh, net zero fuels to sort of get there. But I think there's also another point, and, and we see that when we look at uh, maybe not the latest generations of vessels operating, is that the equation is also how the vessels are being operated. And then brings in the discussions on, you know, one, what, are, what is the charter's role in this? And two, what are the chartering mechanism in this? Because we work on, we have new buildings on order, we have 36 vessels uh, in the water. Some of them are steam vessels, some of them are TFTs, and then we have you know, a plethora of two-stroke vessels as well. Um, and we see that the difference, even between the older technologies, so through the whole technology, um, the difference between intra-fleet performance is not because one vessel is less efficient than the other one because one vessel is being operated in a different way than the other one. The amount of LNG gas that you burn as, uh, as your fuel, 
the amount of ballast legs that you travel, the speed you travel, the so all of these factors are something that because of the methodology and the tool that we use in the LNG space, which is only a time trial to solution, is something that is dictated most of the time by the operator. So I think that at some point there will need to be uh, a different set of mechanism that creates the partnership between the operator and, and the charter. And I think you see that in two points. One, um, lots of, we know that our new building cases are no, normally built on long-term uh, long charters. You know, we, we ordered four vessels back in October, you know, and they were swept away for, you know, uh, 10 plus years. Still, once you elapse those 10 years, what happens is you're left with now, we assume, 15 years of residual value, you know, five years ago probably was 35 years of residual value or another 25. But the same charters will go on and look for the next set of new buildings and will contact for another 10 years, basically shedding the responsibility to what happens to your asset. And that's point number one. And the second point is that at least uh, the, as, as also Jerry was mentioning, you know, clarity on regulations, you know, EU ETS schemes have, was conceived at the very beginning as something that should have been on the charter's book. The latest turn has actually been that it's going to be on the owner's book. Hmm? And, and that poses you know, great questions on why should we bear, uh, or in what manner should we share the responsibility of a common service that we, we actually carry out on behalf of someone else. So, um, maybe I give you more, more, an, more questions than answers, but you know, I think <laughs> it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with this, I would like us to move on to a similar subject. So we, we will talk about efficiency, but you mentioned clarity on regulations, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid we won't see any of this quite soon. So we have MEPC uh, beginning of this month, and uh, we will surely see a new revised IMO greenhouse gas strategy, probably with the direction to, to net zero. And of course, at the same time, fuel EU and EU ETS pose the first economic penalty on the operation of ships. Uh, so let's talk about the fuel question, which is, I suppose, the most popular uh, issue nowadays. Do you see that zero and net zero variants of fuels will be available anytime soon and at some price that will be competitive or pragmatic? So what's your view on that? Andrew. Um, I mean, if you, yeah, I think the EU ETS is a prime example. I think it's a great yeah, intention of actually trying to get people to invest in that technology. And I think the problem is if you look at the, the order books and how the technology can go and actually trans transition, yeah, you haven't got the net zero yeah, fuels available. Do you have green ammonia? Yeah, you only really need to be talking about green ammonia and green methanol, green hydrogen. Those are the ones which are truly yeah, net zero, which you want in 2050. There's providers, there's bunker operators looking at trying to do that. And as you said, with the building there, the technology's there, but you actually need the infrastructure being built. So until you know, you've got the main engines in 2024, you know, then you're actually, well, what do you do in the near term? Let's just talk about the near term. 
you know, you've got the bunker splits, you've only got 2% of the entire fleet actually, you know, sort of LNG. You know, that's by 2030. Being optimistic, 6%. Okay, that's brilliant. But, only if you look at the alternative fuels, you know, if you exclude LNG and LPG, you're going from 0.2 to up to 1.4%. You know, that, it's, it's long-term gain. So I think the LNG is here to stay, but with the E2UTS, if you look at, if you don't put on the carbon tax side, so if you put on an $87 you know, um, premium on, on your side, LNG is still not a, the preferred fuel to use. If you put on 200, it's still, because of the way LNG bunker prices are so high, it still is not the preferred choice. But when you look at the CO2 emissions, it is the least amount. 0.5 is the most. High sulfur fuel, yes, you've got the scrubbers, and actually that's probably well to wake is the least. So if we're going to have to actually make LNG and us using LNG as the preferred choice, and I think that should be, how do we put the mechanism in place? And it was interesting, I was thinking about it you know, the other day. In the UK, you actually diesel doesn't take much to you know, cost, but it's more expensive than unleaded. So why can't we just actually just make sure there's a pricing mechanism in place which always makes LNG the preferred choice? Because until that happens, you know, you've got operators there at the moment saying, well, you've got dual fuel chip, but you're burning 0.5 because it's commercially there. You have the charterers and you know, owners wanting to do their, you know, their goods especially public, because you've got to justify the ESG side. But why would you burn a load more? Who's going to pay for that? You, you can't, it's very hard to justify doing that, from my, if that's from my perspective, from a pricing perspective. Yeah, all right. Thank, thank you, Andrew. And opening the topic a bit, so do you, do you, Zvining, do you, do you feel that there will be one solution as a group, that you will adopt one solution that will eventually uh, be superior to the other alternatives, or would you feel that a portfolio risk-based strategy would be more applicable in in the future of fuels in the fleet? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, we certainly believe that the energy transition away from fossil fuels is the most important, um, most challenging, but also probably most interesting opportunity that we see in front of us. This is happening uh, every day, uh, and we are all part of it, um, being in shipping. We believe firmly that the best solution today is natural gas in the form of LNG. Uh, obviously, our LNG carriers run on gas. We are building VLCCs that will run on gas. We are going to build capesizers that will run on gas. The answer is not one fuel. We need everything in order to get to this load. Uh, we need all the good solutions. Um, obviously, for a ship owner, the most important is that the fuel is available where you need it, <clears throat> not in some different place, and that it is available at a competitive price. Because otherwise, um, somebody will be able to buy fuel which costs less. And uh, that's where the whole issue of a carbon tax comes in. If a carbon tax is to work for our business, 
it must be more or less the same because otherwise it's not a level playing field. And that doesn't work. And then the system won't work. And as, <coughs> as for the non-carbon fuels, I think for all the work that uh, we have done and are doing, um, I think that we look at the ammonia as the most promising. But we also know that to have millions of tons of green ammonia available uh, in the near future is a very, very tall order. But that doesn't mean that we should not continue the, the process. And uh, we all need to work together to get to that point. So the technology, I'm not concerned with the technology. This is about regulations, policymakers, and taxes. And that needs to work in the right direction for the industry. And at the moment, I'm sorry to say that um, we still have a lot of work to do. Thank you. And uh, Paolo and Jerry, I come with the same question, adding one point. If you, if you had the chance to change one thing in the regulatory mix, what would that be? Paolo, do you want to go first? That's a tough question, because there will probably be more than one. Um, I think I will still count on clarity, because as the Forget clarity. Clarity cannot happen. Let's okay. think of something else. <laughs> now you limit the choices. <laughs> OK, then I would say collaboration. Yeah. Then I would say that, you know, the, um, at least within the uncertainty. So if we don't have clarity, it means we have uncertainty. Within the uncertainty of what's going to happen to us next, then I think we should have many more effective venues where we can actually collaborate without the burden of a charter party compliance to dictate where we want to take the discussion. Because as the panel before was mentioning, resilience in, and the ability to change is in the DNA of every shipping company, especially here in Greece. Yeah. And I think the, the possibility to have roundtables, discussions that are really meaningful in we can do this and, you know, sort of leaving aside some of the consequence that might be for you or for me from a contextual point of view, for instance, then I think it's probably the best shot that we have and making, you know, a paved way for, you know, a successful future. Mm -hmm. All right. And Jerry? I, I think Paolo is absolutely right. Um, as far as the Greek shipping community is concerned, we have proven to be able to adapt to new technologies and be pioneers in, in their endorsement. I mean, you can start from double hull tankers, um, then ballast water treatment systems, uh, scrubbers, um, you name it. Um, the Greeks have been pioneers. They have been modernizing their vessels. Um, they have invested heavily in um, LNG uh, carriers as well as LNG dual fuel ships. And I don't have any doubt whatsoever that um, the expertise, the conviction, the complex project management skills that have been developed in the Greek shipping community, um, you know, they will be there to endorse new technologies. But the ship owners' efforts are simply just not enough. We are not working in a vacuum. I think if I would add um, something to what uh, Paolo said is that it's not just the charters. It's the engine makers, it's the shipyards, the fuel providers, 
all of these parties, they have to be uh, at the table and um, play their role. When we go to shipyards to order new ships, um, we might want and we might be also willing to pay for the more environmental friendly vessel available. But other than DF, as uh, Svein mentioned, there is not much else. And uh, when you ask what else is there, you see only concepts. And in order for these concepts to, to mature, uh, we need the engine makers, we need the shipyards, um, and we need the fuel providers, and, the, uh, and of course the infrastructure. So all players have to have a stake in this. It's not just about the shipowning community, and I think that's an important message. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the regulatory mix, uh, or any, any other question, uh, anything you would like to add before we open the floor to perhaps a question from the audience? No. Right. Do we have any question from the audience? Uh, would it be possible? Can you please speak up? Excuse me, we, we cannot hear you well. Do I need to repeat that? Okay. Have you, did you have the chance to hear the question? I, I heard the question. I'm All right. happy to answer. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on where in the world you're looking. It's a good question. In Asia, I do believe that there's more than enough uh, import capacity. Maybe uh, because there's also a lot being constructed. In Europe, it's not the case. Even if all the efforts I used that were available six months ago now have been contracted. I think the last time I counted it was something like 10 or 11. The, um, the issue in Europe has been and still is that there's too much regas capacity concentrated on the Iberian Peninsula, actually close to 30% of the total. <clears throat> there's only one pipe out of Spain and then can transport a tiny portion of that capacity into France. That's, that's the first thing. The, where the import capacity is needed is in Germany, which, which is the largest importer in Europe. They've taken four FSIUs. That should go a good, go a good way to uh, cover most of um, what they import uh, from pipelines from Russia, but not all. So, um, depending on what happens with the replacement of the Russian pipeline gas, uh, obviously, as things look today, there will be a shortage of capacity, but there are major uh, plans in process to rectify that, and I think within a year or three, things will look uh, very, very different than they do today. All right. Um, thank you. I will just mention there are 17 projects in Europe for the FSUs and FSRUs and around 30 and more across the world. So there is activity there as well. And these, these uh, projects, they absorb uh, ships, more ships that are lost from the total global capacity. So 
Summing up, I would like to underline a few points made. First of all, Paolo's point on the importance of operations and uh, the Charter's role in this. Jerry's mentioned about consistency regulations and uh, that we need to work all parties together. Sveining, I really like the maths reference. If somebody looks at the figures, they will understand what you're referring to. We need to look at the figures and the facts as well. And Andrews mentioned on the work you're doing on fuels and dual fuels expected. So uh, with this and noting our time constraints, we're out of time. Uh, I would like to thank our panelists for the very interesting insights. And uh, I would kindly ask you to give them a big round of applause.